0: We'll take your copy of God's word and open to Romans chapter 8. Romans, the eighth chapter. We're going to be beginning a series this morning on Romans 8, verse 28. I want to confess to you before we even read this text that I have been waiting to preach on this text my whole life, at least since I knew about it. But I also want to confess that I have been looking at this with great fear and trepidation because there's so much that could be said about this one verse. It's hard to know what to say and what not to say. Romans 8:28. And we know that God causes all things To work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Hymns are such a sweet part of church life. Hymns are such a sweet part of my life. And for good reason. They make biblical truth memorable by attaching good theology to melody. They allow us to rehearse truth again and again. Corporately, we sing together. When the congregation sings, we actually are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They allow us to cycle and orbit around truth again and again. I love the fact that we don't sing a hymn one time and we're done with it forever. We, we come back to hymns over and over and over again. When you get Christians together, a common question that is, is a lot of fun to talk about is what is your favorite hymn? I've had that conversation with so many. Hope I can have it a lot more with people. That is a, that is a really interesting kind of revelation of what you, what's going on in your heart and in your soul. But I think if we were to poll all of our congregation, at least those who've been around the church for any amount of time, I know one hymn for certain that would be either at the top or near the top. The hymn I'm speaking of is Horatio Spafford's, It Is Well With My Soul. Many, many familiar, are, are familiar with his story and how that hymn came about. For those who are not, let me tell you. It was the late 1800s and there lived a man, a very successful and wealthy businessman in Chicago named Horatius Spafford. Spafford. Horatio Spafford, I'm sorry. In 1871, he lost almost all of his wealth in the great Chicago fire. The insurance companies in Chicago could not bear the weight of so much being lost. He lost almost everything, being successful, being an entrepreneur. He got a lot of his wealth back. The great loss he endured during that um, fire, though, could have wrecked and challenged his faith he was a believer in Jesus Christ. He loved God with, with his heart. And it was evident to everyone around him. But it didn't shake him at all. That, however, would not be Spafford's greatest trial. Two years later, in 1873, after the great financial loss, he had gained some, some uh, finances back. He wanted to give his wife and his four daughters a vacation to get away from the stress that he'd been under in rebuilding his business back in Chicago. So, he put them on a ship to England. On the way across the Atlantic, the ship with Spafford's wife and four daughters ran into another ship in the middle of the Atlantic. The damage to the ship on which these ladies were sailing was so severe that the ship sank in moments. All four of Spafford's daughters drowned. His wife barely escaped. Spafford hears about the accident and receives a short telegram from his wife and all it read was this, Saved Alone. Horatio then took the first available ship that he could find to set sail for England to be with his grieving wife. The ship predictably took the exact same route as the ship that his wife had sailed. When the ship that Spafford was on reached the area of the shipwreck, the captain informed the passengers for a moment of silence. Right there, Spafford out on deck looked out at the sea where his four daughters laid at the bottom. He pulled out a pen and he pulled out a paper and this is what he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, for me, be it Christ. Be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll. No pang shall be mine for in death. As in life thou wilt whisper. Thy peace to my soul. But Lord tis for thee. For thy coming we wait. The sky not the grave is our goal. O trump of the angel. O voice of the Lord. Blessed hope. Blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound resound, and the Lord shall descend. The original says, a song in the night, O my soul. Between all of those verses, he later added a simple refrain It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. John Piper says of this hymn, No song quite gets it in terms of its cadence, its tune, and especially its words. It doesn't get any better than sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Through as well, it is well with my soul. This question, this, this um, hymn brings up a question. How can a man say this in that context? How can a person look in deep grief, in unimaginable loss and say, it's, it's well, my soul is okay. I don't know if you were paying attention, but you actually heard how he could say it in the third line of the song. Whatever my lot, whatever happens, thou hast taught me to say. The original lyric that he wrote was, thou has taught me to know. In other words, I couldn't have this perspective unless I had been taught to have this perspective from God. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't come naturally. Who thinks about joy? Who thinks about personal sin when you're, when you're sailing over your daughters who are at the bottom of the atlantic that simple but profound third line is a fitting summary of how a believer can and how a believer should respond to romans 8:28 whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it's okay it's well with my soul Is that part of your Christian vocabulary? Does that song sing true in your own experience? Is this a part of your theology? Does this reflect what you believe? I think the true test of a person's Christian faith is how we respond in the storm of unpleasant, undesired trials when we are battered with suffering, battered with discomfort, faced with disappointment, in the face of discouragement, disillusionment, we have sickness, we have loss. That's the true test of our faith. Romans eight twenty eight is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. And the truth of this verse ought to be an anchor for our souls, an answer to our questions, and hope for our hearts. Spafford, such a great example. He confessed that God had taught him to rightly assess his troubles and his trials. God had taught him to say to know things about the truth that's above the storm, the sun that's out but unwitnessed from below the rain. I think Romans 8:28 is God's curriculum for developing the kind of perspective that Spafford wrote about. So for the next few weeks, we're going to sit in this classroom with this verse. I wanna to confess to you something. I, I was planning on doing this in a couple of weeks and, and then I was planning on doing it in three weeks. And then uh, as of last night when I was flying into Kansas City and I had 22 pages of notes before I got to point one, we're just gonna see how far we get. But I, I think this is a place we need to pull over and park. When you're driving through parts of the, the Rockies, there are vistas where you pull over and just look at the view. This is a place in Romans we have to pull over. My prayer is that as we mine out the treasures that are just so flowing and inherent in this one simple verse, we will be able to say and sing with confidence and hope, with conviction, whatever my lot, it is well with my soul. Now, this verse, Romans eight twenty eight uh, and the doctrine and the foundational principles that are in this verse are... Necessary for spiritual health. Let me just say it as clearly as I think Paul would say it. If we don't understand the truth behind this verse, we don't have much hope of having a spiritually healthy outlook on life. Christians should be built on this verse. Children need to understand Romans 8.28. Teens and students, collegians, need a working understanding of this verse. Those in good times need this verse and those in difficult times need this verse. And it's especially important for those who, those of you who may be measuring your life that's ahead of you in weeks and months when you used to measure your life in years and decades. This is the tent that the Lord pitches for us to understand and live in. Now, there's a passage that you know very well, especially if you grew up in the 60s and 70s because it was sung um, by a famous group and put to a tune. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that you know this passage. You can turn there if you want, but you can just listen if you like. This is what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said. It's very important. There is an appointed time for everything. Now let's just stop right there. Solomon said, the wisest man who ever lived, there is an appointed time for everything. If you're a good grammarian, you hear the word appointed, that's a passive verb. It's been appointed, means someone has appointed it. And we find out in this passage that it's God who appoints everything. There is an appointed time for everything. He goes on, and there's a time. For every event under the sun. Just stop right there for a minute. Do you believe that? Will you believe? uh, Does your theology bear the weight? Is it strong enough to bear the weight that God is in absolute and complete sovereign and providential control over the universe, the stars, the planets, the solar system, the world, and your life? Is your theology? That strong. There is an appointed time by God for everything, a time for every event under heaven. Then He goes on, a time to give birth, and a time to die. Look, I'm all for going to the gym. I'm all for eating healthy. I'm all for working out. That's great, but make no mistake, nothing is going to add one nanosecond to your life. It may make you feel better till you till the Lord calls you home. But now that's not an excuse to go have a bucket of ice cream this afternoon. God has appointed our day of birth and he has appointed the day of our death. That is a humbling and almost an encouraging thought. God knows when when Rick Holland is going to die. That date is, did someone amen that? That date, (laughs) (laughs) that date is circled on God's calendar. On that day when I breathe my last breath, God will not say what happened. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. That's the harvest cycle. A time to kill and a time to heal. There are times of war and times of refreshing. A time to tear down, a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, to rejoice. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. All appointed by God. Let me ask you a question about your God. Has your God ever been surprised by anything? It's an important question because there's a whole brand of theology that's, that's kind of crept into, into the church in the last uh, 15 years or so called openness theology, which basically says this, God is learning every day just like you and me. He has no more in, uh, control over the future than you and I do. He is learning. He's in process. He's just kind of growing and figuring things out as they happen. Is that, does that represent the God of the Bible? Does that represent the God of your mind, the God that you worship Solomon says God's sovereign providence is over every element of our lives, every time in our life, every event in our lives. God is not merely sitting in heaven, watching and observing the things on the earth. He is intimately involved, intimately involved in everything from the most microscopic to what we can't even see with a telescope. And Romans 8, 28 provides the theological moorings for understanding this control. Now, this passage before us, Romans eight twenty eight, is a profound summary of really what's called the doctrine of God's providence. And before we even get into the text itself, we need to kind of back up and, and, and orient ourselves with this doctrine, the doctrine of God's providence. The, uh, the way I've, I've, I've liked to explain it in, in the past is God's sovereignty is his control of things. And his sovereignty is like way above the clouds, way up there. It's his sovereign control over everything. And we, we're kind of comfortable with that. It's almost impersonal and distant, God's providence, though, is when God's sovereignty gets in your life, gets in your kitchen, when everything is orchestrated. I was thinking about this studying this week, and it actually was a—no, I hope not the theology, and I hope not God, but it was a point of, of irritation. I've been thinking about this and studying it in the morning. I went to, to have lunch with someone and um, had to reroute around a wreck and was pretty frustrated about that. And then I realized that God was in control of that wreck. And I just said, what in the world? I, I felt like saying, God, I'm on your side. What, why, why? This wasn't necessary. Do you have a theology that understands that God is doing thousands, tens of thousands of things in and around and through and with you that you can't see and understand? But he's involved with that. Let's look at God's providence for a moment. God's providence. Let me give you a couple definitions from uh, smarter men than me. Providence is God's benevolent and wise superintendence over his creation. That's one theologian's statement. God's benevolent, it's kind, and wise superintendence of his creation. John Murray is a theological hero of mine. He said this. Providence is that marvelous working of God by which all the events and happenings in his universe accomplish the purpose he has in mind. That's worth reading again. Providence is that marvelous working of God by which all of the events and happenings in his universe accomplish the purpose he has in mind. You gotta be careful. And I'm about to date myself, okay? If you're younger and you don't know what I'm talking about, Just talk to someone who's smiling and they'll explain to you. This is not Doris Day theology, right? K. Sarah, Sarah, don't sing it, just say it. K. Sarah, Sarah, what does it say? Whatever will be, will be. That's fatalism. Whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. It's an outlook of Eeyore on life. Well, it's gonna rain today. Whatever will be, will be. K. Sarah, whatever. God's providence is not fatalism, where everything is destined to be and come about without any choices and human responsibility on our side. God's providence is connected to God's wisdom, God's goodness. There is no blind faith. There is no random order. There's no random chance in God's universe. There are no rogue molecules in God's universe. Nothing that rebels against God and says, My will will trump yours. Nothing. So, as we begin the study of this crucial text, this epic text, this overwhelming text, this life text, it would be, you'd be hard pressed to, for all of us to say this is not one of our life texts or verses. It's imperative to understand what we're called to do with respect to God's providence. Now, I want to talk about this for a moment. We're called to um, interpret God's word, Right? That's called hermeneutics. There are principles of interpreting God's word. You take it literally, historically, grammatically, and contextually. You interpret God's word. But I think sometimes we have to be careful that we're not trying to interpret God's providence. We're all tempted to do it. We all hear ourselves say it. Well, I know what God is teaching me. Well, you may know part of what God's teaching you, but it could be that God's using your life to teach somebody else. Well, I know what God is doing. Well, you may know part of what God is doing, but you can't know fully what God is doing. We're called not to interpret providence, but respond to providence. And that's what this verse teaches us to do. Our confidence is, our interpretation, as we'll see in the verse, is God's gonna work all things together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. That's that's the big stamp we get. Beyond that, don't try to interpret it. Don't try to figure it all out. I want to challenge you to resist concluding with certainty that you know what God is doing when bad things happen, when good things happen, that you're sure of that, that you've got it figured out. What if, what if you're wrong? And what if this is just part of what God's doing, that's a big, what if it's just a piece of the puzzle. And you're saying, "I know what the whole picture says from what He's doing in this one situation." Now, you may be right. You may be right in part, but you have to remember that God is doing tens of thousands of things all at once in His providence, and you and I are but a small part, a beloved part, but a small part. So Romans 8.28 informs us that a believer not only has the advantage of knowing this, but also the assurance that all of God's workings and purposes are for our good. But our good might not be the same as God's understanding of what's good. Thomas Boston, the great Puritan, said this, God has by an eternal decree, immovable as mountains of brass, appointed the whole of everyone's lot in life, the crooked parts thereof as well as the straight. Let's get some of this technical stuff out of the way at the beginning. The Westminster Confession those great Puritan divines who got together and really sorted out the first great doctrinal statement of Protestantism in 1647, they wrote this. Let me go a little slow because it might be hard to track with, but just listen to what they're saying. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, all actions, and all things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. End quote. That's good stuff. We tend to miss God's providence when things are going well, don't we? So you know what God in his love for us does? When we're missing God's providence, providence, when things are going well, he brings things into our life so we remember his providence. He brings things that are a challenge. John Murray has a little paper that's into a little, turned into a little booklet that's been so helpful to me. The paper is called um, Behind a Frowning Providence. The title is telling. It's called Behind a... Frowning Providence it comes from William Cowper's um, great hymn God moves in a mysterious way and it comes from this little segment Judge not the Lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face Romans 8:28 gives us the unmatched insight into both the frowning providence and the smiling face of God. This one simple verse can free you from the trap of thinking that this present world is all there is. This this is a permanent state. This pain is going to last forever. These problems will never go away. It can get your eyes off of yourself and onto God and His purposes, and it can make you swim and bask and love and enjoy the love of God in ways that I don't know any other passage can. Now, as we climb the, the ladder of this verse, you're going to be faced with some challenges, and you're going to face faced with some questions. I've been wrestling with these things for weeks. I want to share them with you. Welcome to my burden. Okay. You're going to ask yourself as we're going through this passage, this verse: Do you believe God? Not do you believe in God, do you believe God? Do you, do you believe what He says? Do you believe the Bible? Specifically, do you believe what this verse teaches and that is true? Do you trust that God is for you and not against you? Do you believe that God is displaying His glory and that is never at odds with your good? Do you trust God's character? Are you suspicious of his heart toward you? Do you believe in heaven? Will you submit to the fact that God's sovereignty in your salvation reaches back before the world began and extends into an everlasting eternity? Do you wonder if life has given you more than you can handle? Have you ever thought this is too deep and too much? I can't Do this. God must have been on a lunch break when this happened because this is too too heavy for me. Do you understand the nature and character of God to such a degree that you could throw yourself at him with a love for him that's for all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength? Not in lieu of what he's doing, but because of what he's doing. And do you have the answer to the question that everyone asks when something undesired happens. Why? Why? I heard when I was a young Christian, a man, a very well-intended man say, you should never ask God why. This verse challenges that because it knows we ask God why and it tells us why. Why? Now, um, let's look at the verse for a moment, okay? This verse is one of the most glorious, one of the most far-reaching truths in Scripture. In fact, the depth and the breadth of this text make it perhaps the most comprehensive truth and idea in all of the Bible. Every part of life is touched by this verse. Now, if you understand it rightly, it'll apply deeply to everything, nothing in this world can rob you of the theology of the theological anthem. It is well. It is well with my soul. If you really get this, but here's the opposite side. Find a person who says it is not okay with my soul. This is not okay. This is not well. And you found a person, or you found a moment when uh, you suspended belief in Romans eight twenty eight. Can I confess to you as your friend, as your pastor? I know what it's like to doubt Romans 8.28. I know what it's like to feel like I'm not sure that's true. I think I believe it with my head, but it certainly doesn't feel that way. For this study, we're going to break our verse down into seven parts. I'm only going to show you part of the first one today, okay? Okay. Seven parts, and we'll just see how long this takes us to get through. And if it feels like it's going slow, just pray for me because I'm working it out in my own life and I need this. So just dragging you along for the ride. Seven insights for living under God's providence. Seven insights for living under God's providence. It's going to take us a few weeks to get through. Let's look just at the first one very briefly this morning. We'll come back to it again. The context of God's providence. The context of God's providence. And it's all in one word at the very beginning. It's the word and. It's the word and. The three most important words in real estate are location, location, and location. The three most important words in Bible study are context, context, context. Don't miss the fact that Romans 8.28. Now, I went to seminary, so I should know this. Ready? Ready? Romans 8.28 comes after Romans 8.27. And it comes right before Romans 8.29. You must have gone to seminary too. And the point is, this is one piece of, of um, uh, you know, the big link of sausages that have these links. This is one link. It's all connected Without this context, it's easy to miss this first point, this word, and. It's in the middle of a chapter, it's in the middle of a paragraph, it's in the middle of a flow of thought. Paul's saying, and God causes. Now, I just wanna show you how important context is and and embarrass myself for a moment if I can. Uh, I wrote a little book a few years ago called Uneclipsing the Sun. I wanna show you how important context is. This went through my eyes, my wife's eyes, two editor's eyes, and a copyrights copywriter's eyes, okay? And yet, listen to what happened. It's in the acknowledgments, so no one reads the acknowledgments, but that's okay. But I want you to listen to how important context is, okay? And good editing is, but that's for another time. I, I wrote this. I remember hearing an author say, there's no such thing as a good author, just a good editor. That's unmistakably the case with this book. Brian Thomason, my editor, edited this book and worked as hard on it as I did. His commitment and passion for uh, for seeing this project through is the main reason the book happened. Only God and his wife Jennifer know the sacrifices he made. (laughs) Everyone know God's wife's name? (laughs) So if you just took that sentence out and said, only God and his wife Jennifer know the sacrifices he made, that would be a problem. I guess if Jennifer's a part of the body of Christ, she's a part of the bride of Christ, we could extend it that way. But that's bad writing, first of all. But you understand that the context, you, you understand what's being said. Context means everything, and that's the case here in the passage before us. Romans eight, twenty eight. Context matters. First word, and. This indicates that we've dropped into verse 28. It's connected to something else. We're in the middle of something. The context of this verse provides the context to our understanding of God's providence. What is the and connected to? Go right back up. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, there are several connections that we need to see here. First, Paul is is, is making this connection of the Spirit's intercession according to the will of God. Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. It's when we run out of prayer, when we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to pray as we should, the Spirit picks up and prays for us. And he's praying, that last phrase, according to Your text might say the will of God. The Greek says according to God. And it's okay to say the will of God because that's God's purposes. That's God's plan. The Spirit prays for us according to God. The fact that God is causing all things to work together for good is directly related to the Spirit praying for such. He knows the mind of God. God knows his mind. His prayer for us is not God get them out of this situation. God make their life better. His prayer is work all things together for their good. It's all connected because he's praying how? According to God, according to God's will. So his prayer is connected to, with this word and, connected to all things working together for good because God is causing it. I want you to notice something else. Notice there's a distinction made with what we do not know and what we do know here. The context is that we come to God with groanings, with aches, with problems in our souls. We want help. We want perspective. We run out of things to ask for. We've come to a cul-de-sac in our prayer. We don't know how to pray as we ought, the text says. So the Spirit prays for us. But look at this. If you, if you circle things and connect things in your, in your Bible, this, this is an interesting little mark you can make if you wanted to. We do not know how to pray in verse 26. We do not know. You see that? What does verse 28 say? We know. You see that? We may not know how to pray. We may not know what to pray but we do know something that no matter what God causes all things to work together for good we know that so we find ignorance and confidence in in three within three verses we don't know how to pray but we know that God's doing something does that reflect your faith does that reflect your confidence does that does that reflect the trajectory of your soul to trust and hope in God We may not know how to pray, but we know something about God and what he's doing in our difficulties. That's a game changer. That is an absolute game changer. In verse 26 and 27, the Spirit of God is helping our weaknesses. Bridging the gap of our ignorance. Personally praying for us according to the will of God. And in verse 28, God, we know that God is causing all of these things that the Spirit is praying for to work together for our good. They go together. The bottom line is that God is intimately involved with us in our most desperate, weak, and needful times. Intimately involved. I remember a long time ago being a little bit critical of what I thought was, oh, that's that, there's that cheesy little poem of the guy walking along the beach and he says, where were you, God? Because there's two sets of footsteps and there's only one. And he said, there's only one set of footsteps. You left me. And you remember how it ends? That was when God carried him. And I thought, oh, come on. You know what? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. God has never looked away from you and every part of your life, one second. Amen. He has never glanced away from you. And it's not just that He's gazing, He's directing, He's orchestrating. There is no such thing as an accident with God. These previous two verses tell us that these times of weakness are so severe that we come into a place we don't even know how to pray. We don't know how to pray as we should. Spirit says, that's okay, I can take it from here. And the way I'm praying is I know that God's doing things that you may not even understand or perceive. Are you willing to submit yourself to the fact that you may never understand until you get to heaven? You may not ever see it. This context, by the way, while we're talking of context, will climax at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 31. After he talks about this theology for a couple of verses, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say in response to God's salvific purposes, his provis- prov- uh, provincial, uh, providential purposes? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? And then verse 32, I think might be right now my most favorite verse in the Bible. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. If that's the case, if he did that, look at the next phrase. How will he not also with him Freely give us all things. It's the nature of God to care for us, to work things together for us. What I find very interesting is that Spafford, in the midst of his grief, didn't stay there. I think I would have been inclined to. Remember what he said though? In the midst of looking at this, he said, my sin, my, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. He's thinking about heaven and hell, life and death, eternity. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but all of it, the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Then you can say, praise the Lord, Praise the Lord, Amen. O my soul. Would you pray with me? This is just the beginning, and I didn't even get through a third of what I wanted to today. If you know and love God, I'm so thankful. This is so understand. If you don't, I want to beg you, run to this place where you can understand life and God. We need our perspective changed, Father, so please. Direct our hearts and our thoughts theologically to a place where we can affirm this truth and it will be the song of our soul. Amen.